You're listening to The Eye of the Storm. I'm your host, Taye Sherrod. Before I took my first job as a hall director at the University of Dubuque, I actually found myself back on the west side of Chicago in the family home that I grew up in. And I was working a part-time job trying to make ends meet until I figured out what my next move would be out of corporate. And one night I had come home from working that job. It was pretty late. I come home and I had pulled into the parking garage that's adjacent to my grandmother's house. And before I could collect my belongings to get out of the car, I looked out of the window and this random man was forcefully grabbing on the door handle, trying to get into the car. And he was aggressively beating on the glass. He was beating on it so hard. I thought he actually might break the glass trying to get into my car. And so I had no idea where this man came from. I didn't even see him. I didn't know if he was drunk, high or whatever the case might be. But I knew that if he managed to get himself into my car, I was screwed. And so the first thought that I had was to call my mom. I knew my mom was in the building. I knew that if I was able to get her to answer the phone, she would be able to come to help me. Um, I called her a couple times with no answer. And so my next thought was to call my grandmother because she was in the building. I said, okay, well, at least she can go get mom and get me some help. I called her a couple times and no answer. And at this point... I'm really starting to get afraid because I felt like there was no one who was going to come to my rescue and I really didn't think I had a way to escape from this guy. Um, I looked up at the sunroof of the car and thought to myself, you know, maybe I'll try to climb out that way. But I reconsidered it because I thought that if he were able to catch up with me, that wasn't going to end well either. And so finally, I thought about putting the car in reverse and just driving away and getting the hell out of there. But before I could put the car in gear, I stopped and I thought to myself, you know, Taye, if you injure this man or worse, if you kill him trying to get away from him in your car, this might be just as bad and have just as bad of consequences as if he managed to get into your car in the first place. And so at this point, you can imagine I really felt trapped and I really felt like I had no way out. And as I was trying in my mind desperately to figure out what to do, Before I knew it, another person had come up and pulled him away from the car and made him leave the scene. Apparently, one of the neighbors up the street, he saw me turn my car into the lot and saw this man follow me close behind. And I think his instincts kicked in and he was like, oh, crap, whatever is about to happen is not going to be good. And so he came off of his porch and followed us over there and saw what was going on and and got him away from me. The ironic thing about this is, is that this person who came to my rescue is actually one of the drug dealers on the block. So if you can imagine that, a drug dealer actually saved my life, which to this day is one of the things that I think is one of the most ironic things that I've ever experienced. But nonetheless, in that entire story, what you didn't hear me say was that I thought about calling the police. In fact, when I thought about calling the police and driving away after whatever was going to happen with this man, I was more worried about how I would be treated in that process than what would take place in terms of them trying to actually help me. 
And I am considered in a lot of ways a model citizen. I have an education. I've never been in trouble. I had a job. And so I shouldn't have worried about that. But despite all of this, I was not entirely convinced that the police officers who responded to the scene or the criminal justice system as a whole would really care. And honestly, after that whole situation, I thought to myself, oh, this is a shame. Like, this should not be this way. I should not have felt this way. I should have been able to call just like anybody else did. But even so, after everything calmed down and all the commotion stopped, we went into the house. And believe it or not, I still didn't call the police. Now, as a child growing up in a place like I did over in Austin, there are certain fundamental things you know to be true. For example, you know that if you are out playing in the summertime, you better be back in the house before the streetlights come on. And I know my mom, I know that if I was not in the house before the streetlights came on and she had to come looking for me, God help me. Um, I had learned from watching my oldest sister and my brother make those mistakes, and I learned to not follow in their footsteps. Um, Another fundamental truth that I learned very young is that under no circumstances, and I mean no circumstances, Do you call the police for anything unless you absolutely have to? And even then, do not call them from your house phone. Now, you have to understand this took place back in the 90s before cell phones were a common commodity that most people had. And there was a real fear that if you called the police on someone and they found out that it was you who called, you could potentially be putting everybody in the family in jeopardy by making that type of a phone call. There was a real fear that the police had the power to essentially ruin your life. And that ran deep within the community. And believe me, nobody took this for granted. To us, it's one of the cardinal rules of engagement that kept us alive. As I've gotten older and I've learned some of the history behind policing, it became a lot easier for me to understand why that fear is so deeply entrenched in the community And why, when I was being attacked by somebody, the last thing I thought to do was call the police. Some of the earliest forms of policing have origins in slave patrols. That's right. Back in the day when our ancestors were enslaved, there were groups of men whose job it was to look for runaway slaves and do whatever they felt was necessary to keep them in line. Obviously, this included inflicting pain through brutal means and refusing to see their humanity as people. All they saw were commodities that had escaped and they had to do whatever humanly possible to get them back to their slave owners, which the thought of that makes me absolutely cringe. Um, You see this legacy all the way on down. You see it through the 1950s and 1960s when people were out there marching and they had police batons beating people and dogs attacking people and fire hoses attacking people for trying to peacefully march. And again, even today, that legacy still remains. And the only difference now is that we see it on our social media feeds through our cell phones and a black person dies and we have to watch that over and over again and the wanton disregard for human life through the use of excessive force at the hands of law enforcement. The way I see it, there's really no way around this. Brutalizing black people for no other reason than it's permissible, both legally and culturally, runs deep within the fabric of modern day law enforcement. 
It explains why they seem to have a militarized mentality when it comes to policing in black neighborhoods. And frankly, it explains why we saw those officers do to George Floyd what they did. They did not care about that man's humanity at all. They saw him in a lot of ways as slave patrol folks did, as a commodity to be controlled, for his body to be controlled by them and for them to decide whether he lives or dies regardless of what it was he was doing. They did not see the person in him at all. They did not think about who they were taking away from a family who loved him. Both implicitly and explicitly, police officers have the blessing of our larger society as a whole to do what they want to do to black people, when they want to do it, however they want to do it. And until that changes, we are going to continue to see this cycle repeat itself over and over and over again. We have been watching this ever since Rodney King got beat back in the early 90s, and we are still seeing it now. The core of these systems is really as rotten as what they produce in terms of the police officers who do these kinds of things. Now, as an ordinary citizen who has a different model of what community policing can look like, and knowing that it can lead to different outcomes after years working with police in a lot of different capacities that I explained already, There are two areas that I think need to be addressed in order to make real transformational change. First and foremost, the policing mindset is going to have to change. Now, some would say that the main focus needs to shift from seeing black communities as war zones, essentially. And I would agree with that. A lot of people in the news are talking about that right now. But I do think that that is just part of the equation. I think there's something that's much deeper that's going to have to be addressed in policing in order to see real transformational change. And in my opinion, that's going to be that police officers, police departments, cities all around the country are going to have to reckon with the fact that policing has a role in the original sin of this country in terms of anti-Black racism. It has its place in the slave narrative. And ever since its inception through slave patrols, It has carried that legacy with it all the way throughout down the line. We talk about doing implicit bias training and cultural sensitivity training and all that kind of stuff. And that certainly has its place. But if you have police officers who refuse to see the humanity in black people, just don't want to acknowledge that black people are truly people with feelings and families and dreams and hopes and aspirations, There is no amount of sensitivity training. There is no amount of implicit bias training you can do in the world that's going to fix that. And I would know because I do this type of training all the time. It's what I currently do in my full-time job is train faculty and staff on campus around implicit bias and microaggressions. And I'm telling you, if we do not deal with these people who truly do not value Black life in the same way that they value it anywhere else, the training is not going to fix that. Simply put, those officers are going to have to go. They are a detriment to making real change. And frankly, they don't deserve the responsibility or the privilege of serving in our communities with salaries that are paid for by our tax dollars. For me, as our founding fathers said once before, the huge thing was no taxation without representation, right? And at this point, We are paying our tax dollars into a system that frankly does not adequately represent us. And to me, that is fundamentally un-American.
The second thing we're going to have to tackle in this is that the systems themselves are going to have to change. We're going to have to pull them apart and build completely new ones that are centered around equity and health for all of our citizens. I don't care how many black officers there are on a police force. If they are beholden to the same systems and structures that have silenced black voices, that have brutalized black bodies for centuries, their presence is not going to do very much to upend those systems. That's asking a lot of black people who already carry the emotional labor of dismantling the systems to do, especially when they're operating in a system that was designed for their destruction in the first place. If you rely on just the numbers of diversity and the representation, again, which is important, but can't be the end all be all, you're still going to get the same results. So you really do have to break down these systems, acknowledge their roots and their origins, put equity at the center of these institutions, and then build on top of that to build the policies, the procedures, and the structures that put community policing first. Once those foundational principles are set up and put in place, then I think you can begin to build a model of policing that better meets the needs of communities that will ensure public safety and well-being for everybody involved. In the next episode, I'm going to give you a crash course in college student development 101, and we're going to be talking about chickering seven vectors of college student development. Now, granted, this specifically applies to students in the collegiate realm, but like I said, our students are a microcosm of what's happening in our larger society as a whole. And I truly believe that some of the things we've learned through our formal educations in terms of dealing with college students and their development, I think a lot of those principles can apply to our society as a whole and how police officers and the systems that keep police officers and train them and put them in our streets should be thinking about the residents who they serve, and how to interact with those residents. So it's about equitably holding them accountable while still seeing their humanity at the same time. We'll discuss what this looks like and how these principles can be applied to community policing as a whole to, again, start rebuilding the trust that has been broken for so many generations.